Welcome to Emmanuel, a podcast designed to help enhance your study of the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the material this week. It's just two chapters, 2 Nephi chapter 1 and 2. Uh, but with these two chapters, chapter two is definitely very dense, um, has a lot in it, some very critical doctrines to the plan of salvation. So I uh, definitely won't have any problem finding content to look at carefully and to hopefully understand a little more deeply. So start in chapter one. Um, the context here is uh, we clearly see in verse 14 that Lehi is actually giving uh, these words, this sermon, if you will, just a few days before his passing. Uh, So thinking about this uh, as a a final words speech or sermon, I think is very helpful. Additionally, when you get into chapters 3 and 4 as well, which is a continuation of Lehi's words, that you can kind of see there's some parallels between Lehi's words and what we might consider a patriarchal blessing today. So it might be an interesting study for you to look at chapters one through four over the next couple weeks and then to read your own patriarchal blessing and see the parallels uh, that you could draw between these chapters and what God has spoken to you through your patriarchal blessing. So um, getting into the verses here, the, the first couple verses in chapter one, uh, you know, at first maybe seem a little just run of the mill, if you will, uh, but thinking through them, I think, can provide some helpful, helpful applications for our own lives. So it says, now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of teaching my brethren, our father Lehi also spake many things unto them, so Nephi's brothers, and rehearsed unto them how great things the Lord had done for them in bringing them out of Jerusalem. And he spake unto them concerning their rebellions upon the waters and the mercies of God in sparing their lives, that they were not swallowed up in the sea. So this idea of rehearsing great things that God has done for us, I think, uh, you know, Elder Anderson gave a talk a few years ago in April 2020. Interesting that it came during... Uh, where a lot of the world was in lockdowns due to the COVID pandemic and, you know, decisions that were made there by governments to to do that. So he gave this talk called Spiritually Defining Memories. And in it, he talks about the importance of these memories where we have times where the Lord shows us that he loves us and where we have these feelings uh, and these thoughts and these experiences that are clearly divine. And why those are so important to us, because as we go through our challenges in life, that we can remember or, as Lehi does, rehearse those spiritual de- spiritually defining memories. And a couple of examples of that, um, one, a couple that came to mind right away was uh, my two oldest sons recently have had some experiences there where I hope they'll remember and rehearse those. Um, my oldest son, Trey, was, uh, had been working really hard with his dance partner towards going to a competition in Las Vegas that they were very excited about and really were hoping to do well at. 
and the week of that competition he became extremely ill to the point where he could barely get out of bed. Uh, he's a pretty tough kid. I know I'm biased, but he's he's definitely a tough kid. And so when he goes down like that, it's definitely uh, not something to be tampered with. So he definitely was not doing well. And so we started to worry that he wasn't going to be able to make it to this competition, let alone do well. Um, I believe it was a night or two before he was supposed to leave. I went down and asked him if he, well, he requested that I give him a blessing. And, you know, as a dad, you always worry, oh, well, I'm just going to say, you know, he's going to be healed because that's what we want, right? But in this particular case, I had a very, very distinct and clear impression that the Lord would heal him in time for him to compete and that it could be one of these spiritually defining memories. So I gave him the blessing and uh, told him that the Lord would help him and help him have the strength to be able to compete and do his best. And even though it did not look promising over the next day or so, he acted in faith, and that was part of the blessing is just, hey, show your trust and just go. So he went down to the competition, and his report to my wife on the phone was that as he would go out on the floor, he would feel strength, almost as if the Savior was with him. And when he would finish the dance, he would leave the floor and immediately feel exhausted and uh, start coughing, all these things again. Uh, and so he went through the competition, was able to do very well and have this experience, this spiritually defining memory, uh, because he was willing to act in faith and that blessing promised the Lord's help there. So that's one example. Another uh, example is my second old son, Trenton. Uh, he's in my early morning seminary class that I teach and during a particular discussion, we had one little point where it kind of went on a tangent for like 30 seconds, and I just made a quick comment about um, making sure that you learned how to prepare for uh, marriage by essentially making things right in current relationships, that um, that you forgive and not distance yourself from others that you love that may have harmed you or hurt you. Uh, and it just so happened, unbeknownst to me, that he had had, uh, in the previous couple days, had had a tiff with a very close friend and was thinking about distancing himself from this friend. And just those couple words that came out on a tangent in the class because of a comment that uh, another student had made led to him receiving a very clear impression that he needed to forgive and become closer with this person rather than distance himself. And so it was interesting to see how the Lord worked there with that spiritually defining memory. Um, I could probably go on and on with this, but uh, another one that's interesting to me is um have some friends of mine from high school that are uh, very much like brothers to me. Each of us was in kind of an interesting situation where due to one circumstance or another, we didn't have any siblings that were super close to us in age. And so, uh, or at least any brothers close to us in age. And uh, so we all became kind of like brothers. And to this day, when we get together, it will frequently come up a story where a couple of them were 
stranded on a hunting trip in the middle of the night in the mountains and a trucker with the ability to pull a truck randomly uh, decided to take the quote-unquote scenic route and showed up in the middle of the night um, to basically save their bacon, if you will. Uh, and after a prayer that they had just said, literally got done with the prayer and the light showed up. And so these spiritually defining memories are things that we can remember that as we go through new challenges. They're little lights or stepping stones, as Elder Anderson calls them, to help us see the Lord's love for us. Uh, so I just think uh, we can't underestimate the power of rehearsing, like Lehi does, these spiritually defining memories, to not forget the mercies of God, to not forget the great things that God has done for us, to take the time to write them down or to you know, tell those stories to our children, to family members, to friends, so that we can uh, have that strength to continue to move forward. So uh, verses 3 and 4 uh, are a reminder of the warnings that they hit. Well, it starts in verse 3, how they had followed the warnings of the Lord. And Lehi now says, I've seen a vision that I know that if we would have stayed in Jerusalem, we should have perished because Jerusalem is now destroyed. When you look at the context and go into uh, like Second Kings 25, you can actually see that that is indeed uh, contextually accurate and that at that point, Jerusalem had been overrun. Uh, and so this idea of hearkening to the warnings of the Lord, seeing the warnings of the Lord that come through his prophets as acts of mercy rather than annoyances. And there's a kind of a theme with this you'll we'll kind of see as we go through these chapters of how you look at things, what your perspective is. And so warnings that come from the prophets that we may see as politically or socially unpopular are actually God's mercy being extended to us through his prophets. So just encourage all of us to look at the words of the prophets in that way rather than seeing them in that negative light. So verse 5 uh, I love this verse because of what it teaches. Uh, but said he, notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise, a land which is choice above all other lands, a land which the Lord God hath covenanted with me should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Yea, the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever. And also all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. So there's a lot of correlations here with the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 15, what we know as the Abrahamic covenant, um, that there's a covenant to provide property. There's a covenant to provide posterity uh, and protection. So there's these similar similarities between the two that help us see sort of the... The, just the, the, the same promises that Lehi receives are very similar to the ones that Abraham received, showing us how closely related the Book of Mormon and the Bible are, and showing us that the Book of Mormon is consistent with biblical covenant teachings, um, another testament to the Book of Mormon's truthfulness. And also very interesting to note is that 
Lehi says that he's coming to have this land forever. Um, you probably noticed that I emphasized that word as I read it. And I think that we underestimate that word too. Sometimes we think, oh, well, that's just, you know, using a word to uh, make it seem more powerful or whatever. But when when the Lord says forever, uh, I think he means it because if we look deeper into the scriptures, we can understand that future state, Doctrine and Covenants 88, 15 through 20, that this earth actually becomes the celestial kingdom. So this isn't just like a, a temporal promise here, but this is an eternal promise that Lehi's posterity can have an inheritance in the celestial kingdom forever, that this earth, this land is something that's going to be theirs forever and is a celestial promise rather than just a temporal promise related to prop, uh, property. So you think about what uh, that can mean to us, that we have this covenant that we can have an inheritance on this earth forever, uh, and it kind of changes the way that we look at verse 5. So really love uh, that verse for that reason. So as we look at verses 6 through 12, we see Lehi talking through um, people who come into the land and this dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked, you know, that the wicked will be brought into captivity and unto the righteous, this land's going to be blessed forever. And I think it's interesting because we, if we go back to um, what had happened, verse three and four, Lehi confirms that the warnings that he had received from the Lord led to them avoiding the calamities that came upon Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And then now here, here he is going to give some additional warnings. And again, the way you look at these warnings will depend, will often determine your response. Uh, and so these righteousness versus wickedness warnings that Lehi gives in verses 6 through 12 are important to recognize because we know those warnings will come true because his previous prophecies and warnings came true as well. The other thing I wanted to call out here is particularly in verse 10, we learn that the most important focus here of following through on these warnings is not rejecting Christ, the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, Messiah, their Messiah and their God. The critical piece to heeding this warning, which is to all of us as well, is that we remain focused on and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that later on in chapter 2, we'll see this brought kind of full circle the idea of liberty through Christ, captivity through rejecting him, captivity through the devil. So I think it's important for us to recognize that Christ is the key to heeding this warning, that remembering him, believing in him, focusing on him. All right, the next uh, thing I wanted to talk about is in verse 13, verses 13 and 23. We have this uh, imagery of chains. And Lehi says, Oh, that you would awake, awake from a deep sleep, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which you are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf, gulf of misery and woe. Um, so first thing that he says is awake from deep sleep. 
Now, I'm just going to remind everybody that if you look at the parable of the ten virgins, we often talk about, you know, ten, the five wise, the five foolish, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is, though, that if you read the parable carefully, all ten slumbered and slept. Okay, so all ten. And we know, you know, from President Oaks and just from the context of it, that all ten virgins are symbolic of members of Christ church. So all of us at a some at some point are slumbering and sleeping. We are being negligent in our duties. We're not perfect in waiting on, waiting for the Savior. And so this call from Lehi to awake from a deep sleep comes to all of us. And he invites us to invites his his sons to shake off the chains by which they are bound. Okay, so those chains could be bad habits, they could be sins, they could even be uh, debt, you know, getting into more debt than uh, we need to be in and feeling that captivity there. So this idea here of obedience leading to freedom and these, you know, bad habits giving into sin eventually leads to captivity and you can easily think of this concept you know great examples would be things like drug and drugs and alcohol where you may see restrictions from being able to participate in those things or partake of those things as you know holding you back or being restrictive but the reality is is that you're avoiding substances that could actually bring you into captivity uh, rather than leading to freedom so interesting concept there with the idea of shaking off chains uh, and, and knowing that shaking off chains is possible through the Savior. Uh, as illustrated, I want to go into verse 15. This, this is such a good verse for so many reasons. Lehi says, But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory and I am encircled about and eternally in the arms of his love. The tense of these words here is very important. The Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. Okay, redeemed, you know, is to purchase, to bring back to a previously desirable state. This words are going to be used multiple times throughout these next couple chapters. Um, so we have to recognize that in John 19, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, he means that. It's done. The purchase is complete. He has redeemed us. And when we recognize that and really believe him when he says that, I think it changes the way that we look at things. Uh, it changes the way we look at forgiveness. Uh, it changes the way that we feel towards the Savior and our willingness to repent, I think. And, and this brings us to... Um, some of the ideas here uh, about what it means to be encircled about in his love, what it means to be redeemed. So this this word, uh, sort of, we're, we're going to talk a lot about the definitions of words over these next couple of chapters. So the word in reference here that we want to look at is the word atonement, the atonement of Jesus Christ, because the atonement of Jesus Christ is what how we are redeemed, I should say, okay, through through the Savior. So there's an article in the July 1990 Enzyme that gives some really interesting um, definitions. 
and some imagery that really helps us understand why verse 15 would have been so beautiful for Lehi to speak of. So reading from this article says, people are usually surprised to learn that atonement, an accepted theological term, comes from neither a Greek nor a Latin word, but is good old English and really does mean when we write it out, at one meant denoting both a state of being at one with another and the process by which that end is achieved. The monetary metaphor is by far the most common, being the simplest and easy to understand. Hence, frequently the word redemption literally means to buy back. That is to reacquire something you owned previously. By redemption, someone has paid a price to get you off, restoring you to a former happier condition. Okay, but the frequent use of the commercial analogy is not out of reverence for trade and commerce, just the opposite, in fact. The redeemed are bought to clear them of all worldly obligation by paying off the world in its own currency, after which it has no further claim on the redeemed. Okay, so he goes on to give a whole bunch of other uh, images, and he starts talking about words in other languages that are similar to atonement. Okay, and then he goes into this one. This is very interesting because of Lehi's words and, and likely what Lehi's past context and, and life have been. So it says this, Most interesting is the Arabic kafata, as it is the key to a dramatic situation. It was the custom for one fleeing for his life in the desert to seek protection in the tent of a great sheik, crying out, Ana Dakiluka, and I have no idea if I'm saying that right. So sorry if anybody knows Arabic, meaning I am thy suppliant, whereupon the host would place the hem of his robe over the guest's shoulder and declare him under his protection. In one instance in the Book of Mormon, we see Nephi fleeing from an evil enemy that is pursuing him. In great danger, he prays the Lord to give him an open road in the low way to block his pursuers and to make them stumble. He comes to the Lord as a suppliant. O Lord, will thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? In reply, according to the ancient custom, the master would then place the hem of his robe protectively over the kneeling man's shoulder, kafata. This puts him under the Lord's protection from all enemies. They embrace in a close hug, as Arab chiefs still do. The Lord makes a place for him and invites him to sit down beside him. They are at one. This is the imagery of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the embrace. The Lord has redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. So I love that idea and that imagery of coming to the Lord and being able to think of this idea of coming to him and saying, I am thy suppliant. And that immediately he takes us in his arms, in his protection and says, okay, you're mine. Like you're under my protection. You're redeemed. And I think that changes the way that we can look at repentance. So often we look at it in, in a negative way and we look at the challenges that uh, make it difficult to repent or that, oh, I have to you know, talk through this, whatever. But the bottom line is we are coming to a place where the Savior is taking us in his arms and saying, I've got you, I've got you covered. He covers us in his robe of righteousness and takes us in his arms. We're encircled about eternally in those arms of love. 
So again, just the way you look at things, you know, repentance is not intended to be some painful process, but rather the process of coming back at one with the Savior and with our Heavenly Father. And the way that this word is used here and the way Lehi describes it, it's a beautiful experience of being taken into the Savior's arms and being brought at one. And what's required of us is our willingness to look at him as the one who can do this, that we are supplying to him and asking him for his help and recognizing that he's the one that has to save us, that has to redeem us, that has to uh, bring us back to that former condition. So I love the imagery there because of uh, how it can change the way that we look at repentance and it becomes a much more positive thing. So, all right. Um, Verses 16 through 19, uh, you know, Lehi is really concerned with his son. He talks about the anxiety of his soul. And at the end of verse 19, despite all of his fears about his son, the Lehi says, but behold, his will, the Lord will be done for his ways are righteousness forever. So I think while we all have some fears, maybe for our own souls or certainly for the souls of those that we care about. um, But what do we know about God that can allow us to say his will be done, his ways are righteousness I mean, if you think about it, what do you know? You know, he's perfectly just, he's perfectly merciful. Uh, He understands our circumstances completely. uh, And when we look in the scriptures, he's always on the erring on the side of mercy, if you will, Um, that all of our circumstances are taken into account. And I think when we think about it this way, it gives us a lot less Um, fear for the future and for that day, uh, and a lot more confidence that God will be merciful and that he, uh, that we don't have to be afraid uh, of the end result. I don't think any of us are going to get to that end state and say, oh, well, that wasn't fair. I think actually opposite, we're going to say, well, actually, this was way more than fair, Uh, we don't deserve what the blessings that will come to us. And I think just Lehi's words here really emphasize to me that he knows that about God. Behold, his will be done, his ways of righteousness forever. And if we can say that, it's a lot less hand-wringing and uh, sitting there and worrying about things and a lot more trust and faith and confidence in the character of God and his attributes of mercy and justice. So uh, again, love that imagery as well. All right. Um, I want to pick it up in verse 21 and just pick a couple lines from this verse that I have stood out to me over the years. Um, One of the lines is, arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. And, you know, Elder Christopherson gave a, a talk called Let Us Be Men, where he referenced this verse, and he tells a story about his father. He says, years ago, when my brothers and I were boys, our mother had radical cancer surgery. She came very close to death. Much of the tissue in her neck and shoulder had to be removed, and for a long time, it was very painful for her to use her right arm. One morning, about a year after the surgery, my father took mother to an appliance store. 
and asked the manager to show her how to use a machine he had for ironing clothes. The machine was called an iron right. It was operated from a chair by pressing pedals with one's knees to lower a padded roller against a heated metal surface and turn the roller, feeding in the shirts, pants, dresses, and other articles. You can see that this would make ironing, of which there was a great deal in our family of five boys, much easier, especially for a woman with limited use of her arm. Mother was shocked when Dad told the manager they would buy the machine and then paid cash for it. Despite my father's good income as a veterinarian, mother's surgery and medications had left them in a difficult financial situation. On the way home, my mother was upset. How can we afford it? Where did the money come from? How will we get along now? Finally, dad told her that he had gone without lunches for nearly a year to save enough money. Now when you iron, he said, you won't have to stop and go into the bedroom and cry until the pain in your arm stops. She didn't know... He knew about that. I was not aware of my father's sacrifice and act of love for my mother at the time. But now that I know, I say to myself, there is a man. And so when I read Lehi's words and, I, and he says, you know, arise from the dust, my sons, and be men, uh, that story uh, to me illustrates what a man is like. Um, and... It reminds me also of a description that Elder Talmadge gave of the Savior as a man uh, as he explained the story of Christ coming in and clearing the temple. And so I, I want to share that description with you. I think it's a, a beautiful description of what a man should be because it is about the man, Jesus Christ. And so Elder Talmadge says this, the incident of Christ's forcible clearing of the temple is a contradiction of the traditional conception of him as of one so gentle and unassertive in demeanor as to appear unmanly. Gentle he was and patient under affliction, merciful and long-suffering in dealing with contrite sinners, yet stern and inflexible in the presence of hypocrisy, and unsparing in his denunciation of persistent evildoers. His mood was adapted to the conditions to which he addressed himself. Tender words of encouragement or burning, ex burning expletives of righteous indignation issued with equal fluency from his lips. His nature was no poetic conception of cherubic sweetness ever present, but that of a man, with the emotions and passions essential to manhood and manliness. He who often wept with compassion at other times evinced in word and action the righteous anger of a god. But of all his passions, however gently they rippled or strongly surged, he was ever master. Contrast the gentle Jesus moved to hospitable service by the needs of a festal party in Cana with the indignant Christ plying his whip and amidst commotion and turmoil of his own making, driving cattle and men before him as an unclean herd. So whenever we think of a description of a man, we should think of Jesus Christ. And this description of him, I think, is just beautiful and reminds me of another talk from Elder Uchtdorf that is titled, Behold the Man, talking about the scene with Pilate where Pilate says, Behold the Man, and points to the Savior. And really, this beautiful uh, piece from Elder Uchtdorf talks about when we want to be a man, or even, we could even expound this and say, you know, if you want to look at somebody as far as the characteristics and attributes, um, at what kind of woman 
you know, you would want to be. It's um, these descriptions of Christ and what he was like and his attributes and his character are essential. And I'm reminded of, you know, examples of men in my life. You know, I know watching my dad growing up, he um, sacrificed so much. He worked all hours of the day. He would work during the day at his normal job and come home and after dinner would be out in his shop in the garage doing extra to make a little extra money to make ends meet. And there was never any complaining there. He always did it. And somehow he always made time to be to all my ball games and to throw the ball around with me in the backyard and to, to teach me those things. And, um, you know, I watch my father-in-law who uh, works outdoors in construction and what he gives and what he sacrifices to make ends meet for his family. And I, I see, you know, brothers and brother-in-law doing, brothers-in-law doing the same things. Uh, and that's what it means to be a man, to put other people uh, above yourself and to give yourself in service to them and to help them. So um, I love this word from Lehi. And I love what he says next, to be determined in one mind and one heart, united in all things. And that's part of being a man is finding ways to be unified with your spouse, with your family, with the Lord, uh, and with others. And I think that that really flies in the face of, of how men are often defined and shows us what the truth is. Uh, of how a man should be defined. So uh, I want to pick up in verse 23 again. I referenced this earlier, but this idea of arising from the dust, coming forth out of obscurity, shake off the chains and what that means. And I think verses 24 through 32 help us see that. And I, I want to go through these verses similar to how we have in the past with Nephi as a type of Christ. Lehi kind of becomes this... Um, God, Heavenly Father figure, and Nephi becomes this Christ figure. Uh, and listen to these words because I think they're powerful when they, we go this way. Look at it this way. Rebel no more against your brother whose views have been glorious and who hath kept the commandments from the time that we left Jerusalem. Okay, Jesus, perfectly obedient. And who hath been an instrument in the hands of God and bring us forth into the lands of promise. For were it not for him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. Okay, so the Savior provides everything for us. Nevertheless, ye sought to take away his life, yea, and he hath suffered much sorrow because of you. And even though we don't want to admit it, okay, all of us have, in essence, uh, done things to, uh, that would have been sorrowful to the Savior as we sin. Uh, so recognizing that. So thinking again as Nephi is this type of Christ reading through these verses. Okay, and verse 25, you've accused him that he sought power and authority over you, but he hasn't sought power and authority. He sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. Everything Christ does is for our welfare, even those times when our conscience is pricked and we, uh, conscience, excuse me, is pricked and we know we need to change because of his words. You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, he's trying to control or, you know, we, th there are things we don't want to hear, but the reality is he's seeking our welfare. And then verse 26, similarly, his sharpness was the sharpness of the power of the word of God manifesting boldly concerning your iniquities. In that description of Christ as a man, you know, it's clear he's not going to hold back on things that we need to change. 
that's part of his love and, and part of this comparison of Nephi being a type of Christ. Verse 27, it must needs be that the power of God must be with him, even unto his commanding you that you must obey. But behold, it was not he, but it was the spirit of the Lord, which was in him. And it reminds us of Isaiah 61, where this messianic prophecy, the spirit of the Lord God, God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. So this idea of the spirit of the Lord being upon Nephi, just like it was on Christ. And then verse 28, if you will hearken unto the voice of Nephi, ye shall not perish. Okay, clear. If we hearken to the voice of Christ, we will not perish. And then he goes on to verse 30, uh, speaking now to Zoram. Thou hast been brought out of the land of Jerusalem. I know that I art a true friend unto my son Nephi forever. Uh, because uh, Zoram had been, had shown that he was a friend through his actions. You can kind of see that if you look back over the chapters since they pick up Zoram in, in 1 Nephi 4. And it says in verse 31, Because thou hast been faithful, thy seed shall be blessed with his seed. So this idea of adoption uh, that continues through verse 32 as well, that Zoram, because he hearkened to the words of Nephi and showed that he was a friend of Nephi, gets to have all the blessings with Nephi, just as if we show our friendship with Christ and hearken to his words, we will be heirs with Christ, Romans 8, and sit with him in his throne, even as he's also sat down with his father in his throne, Revelations 3. So love this imagery of, of showing what does it mean to arise from the dust? What does it mean to shake off the chains? It means to follow Christ and see him as he is. All right, let's jump into chapter two. And again, I'm going to emphasize that we're going to get into specific words here because these words are really, really important to understand uh, and change the way that we understand these scriptures. So uh, first thing I wanted to talk through is the first two verses where Lehi is talking to Jacob. Thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren Thou knowest the greatness of God, verse 2, and he shall consecrate thy afflictions for thy gain. I know we've spent some time in this podcast talking through that, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I, I love this quote. It goes along with this from Elder Scott. He says, Just when all things seem to be going right, challenges often come in multiple doses applied simultaneously. When those trials are not consequences of your disobedience, they are evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. He therefore gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion, which polish you for your everlasting benefit. To get you from where you are to where he wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain. Uh, and you can see like Romans 8.28, all things work together for your good. So there's um, some analogies there and, and some thoughts that I think can help us as we consider our afflictions and notice how... They are indeed for our gain and evidence of the Lord's love rather than his displeasure. Uh, then verses, uh, verse three, excuse me, is beautiful. Love this. Uh, Lehi talking to Jacob, he says, Thy soul shall be blessed and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. And I love this because 
so many times we get this mistaken concept of thinking, I guess maybe overemphasizing our actions and our works in reference to being redeemed. Okay, it's clear here from Lehi's words that we are redeemed because of Christ's righteousness, not because of anything that we do. And again, this idea of redeemed, being delivered from bondage, distress, penalty, liability, or from the possession of another by paying an equivalent. Okay, that price has already been paid. It's very, very clear. And it's done because of his righteousness. And it hearkens to uh, Doctrine and Covenants 45 into something we talked about earlier in the first few chapters. Okay, Uh, so... I want to talk about the definition of righteousness and then reference this other passage in Doctrine and Covenants. Definition of righteousness from the 1828 dictionary. Okay, purity of heart and rectitude of life. Applied to God, the perfection or holiness of his nature. Exact rectitude, faithfulness. The active and passive obedience of Christ by which the law of God is fulfilled. Justice, equity between man and man, the cause of our justification, the Lord, our righteousness. Okay, so it's Christ's righteousness that redeems Jacob. Uh, And then we have Doctrine and Covenants 45, verses 3 through 5, which again, we referenced earlier when we talked about the whole symbol of Laban as a type of Christ, where we have this scene and the Savior essentially says, hey, Father, look at me, look at my blood, look at what I've done, and because of me, let this person in. And so recognizing that it's actually Christ's righteousness that gets us in is such an essential uh, part to this, and it changes the way we feel about things. We're a lot less worried about our salvation and we obey, but we obey in a a new way, a less worried way. We obey not because we're trying to be saved, but because God has begun to save us already, uh, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I love thinking of that concept because it changes the way that I look at my salvation and the way that I interact with the Savior, knowing that He has redeemed me, and it's my choice whether I accept that redemption. So my obedient my obedience isn't because I'm afraid and that I'm trying to earn something. My obedience is out of gratitude and love for His redemption. Changes the way the spirit in which we obey, in my view. So. All right, let's look at verse four again, definition here. Uh, The way is prepared from the fall of man and salvation is free. First of all, the way, Christ. Okay, Christ is prepared from the fall of man. Uh, Salvation is free. Okay, so um, there's a quote here from Joseph Smith. says, the great Jehovah contemplated the whole of the events connected with the earth pertaining to the plan of salvation before it rolled into existence. Or ever the morning stars sang together for joy. The past, the present, and the future were and are with him one eternal now. He knew of the fall of Adam, the iniquities of the antediluvians, of the depth of iniquity that would be connected with the human family, their weakness and strength, their power and glory, apostasies, their crime, their righteousness and iniquity. He comprehended the fall of man and his 
redemption. He knew the plan of salvation and pointed it out. He was acquainted with all the situations of all nations and with their destiny. He ordered all things according to the counsel of his own will. He knows the situation of both the living and the dead and has made ample provision for their redemption according to their several circumstances and the laws of the kingdom of God, whether in this world or the world to come. Okay, so this idea that salvation is free, it's open to anybody. I don't have to pay for it. It's already been paid for. It's a choice that I make to choose the salvation of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so I love thinking about uh, that, those three words, salvation is free. Okay, uh, it, it's open to all of us. It's not a cost. It's a decision to make a decision to believe in Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll see that here a little bit in the next few verses. So we're going to get in depth here over the next few verses with the, with this idea of salvation. Okay. Verse five, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil and the law is given unto men. And by the law, no flesh is justified. Okay. And in my view, what this means is there is no way I can be completely 100% obedient to the law. So because of that, there's no way that I can be justified or made righteousness just by my obedience, that that's not possible. Uh, so we have to understand that because then we, we understand our absolute need for Christ. Because there's no way that any of us can perfectly obey God's law. And because of that, there's this, you know, punishment affixed to disobedience. We do need this idea of being justified. We need to be made right. We need to be made righteous. But we cannot do this on our own. Uh, and so these next few verses, I want to set these up by reminding everybody of... A, a beautiful story in Les Miserables. You have Jean Valjean comes out of prison and he gets taken in by the bishop. And he, instead of, you know, returning kindness to the bishop, he actually takes the silver and then ends up being caught by the police and brought back to the bishop. And the bishop responds by not only essentially forgiving him for taking the silver, but also gives him additional silver and then says, you know, promise to take this and make your make yourself a new man. You know, I give you to God. You with I bought your soul with this silver, if you will. And so the the reason why I bring this up is because when Jean Valjean was brought back by the police. And the bishop said, yeah, no, I did give this to him, right? He is essentially justifying Jean Valjean. Okay, he's putting him back in a condition of, um, you know, he's not condemned by the law. So it's an act of mercy, avoiding punishment that he deserved. That's, that's mercy. Okay, and then by giving him the silver, he gives him this act of grace, receiving blessings that Jean Valjean didn't deserve. So mercy, avoiding punishment, we do deserve. Grace, receiving blessings, we don't deserve. Okay, important to recognize as we move into the next few verses. Wherefore, redemption cometh in, verse 6, in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Okay, God is, Jesus Christ is constantly giving us grace. He's giving us the blessings that there's no way we earned, there's no way 
we deserved. You can think about that in your own life. How many times he's provided you with things that you did not deserve. And behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. Okay, so again, words, answer, to be equivalent to, to be adequate to, or sufficient to accomplish the objective, to comply with, fully pay or satisfy, to perform what was intended to accomplish as the measure does not answer its end, it does not answer the purpose. To be accountable, liable, or responsible. To vindicate or give a justific- justificatory count of. Uh, followed by for as a man cannot answer for his friend. So in other words, Jesus accomplished the objective of the law. Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the law. Jesus paid the debt of the law. Jesus is the law. Okay, and when you think about end... Okay, the closer conclusion, the ultimate state or condition, the point beyond which no progression can be made, the final determination, the ultimate point or thing at which one aims or directs his views. Jesus is the conclusion of the law. He is ultimately what we become through the law. Jesus is what the whole law points to. So thinking about those couple of words helps us better understand verse 7. And then when we look at broken heart and a contrite spirit, you know, thinking about what that definition is uh, reminds me of a couple of stories. One is the a parable that Jesus gives in Luke 18. Okay, he, it says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the Savior says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Again, recognizing salvation is free. It's because of the righteousness of the Redeemer. It's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness. And the person who was justified in this story is the person who recognized his need for Christ, not the person who did all the outward actions that made it appear that he was righteous. It was the person who recognized that he could not be righteous on his own, that he needed God's forgiveness in order to receive all the blessings that are available. And so with this um, idea of broken heart and contrite spirit, to take it further, Elder Christofferson said this, In ancient times when people wanted to worship the Lord and seek his blessings, they often brought a gift. For example, when they went to the temple, they brought a sacrifice to place upon the altar. After his atonement and resurrection, the Savior said he would no longer accept burnt offerings of animals. The gift or sacrifice he will accept now is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. As you seek the blessing of conversion, you can offer the Lord the gift of your broken or repentant heart and your contrite or obedient spirit. In reality, it is the gift of yourself, what you are and what you are becoming. 
Is there something in your you or in your life that is impure or unworthy? When you get rid of it, that is a gift to the Savior. Is there a good habit or quality that is lacking in your life? When you adopt it and make it part of your character, you are giving a gift to the Lord. Sometimes that is hard to do, but would your gifts of repentance and obedience be worthy gifts if they cost you nothing? Don't be afraid of the effort required, and remember, you don't have to do it alone. Jesus Christ will help you make of yourself a worthy gift. His grace will make you clean, even holy. Eventually, you will become like Him, perfect in Christ. So I love that quote that, that illustrates what it means to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And you can think about times in your life when you have experienced that, those attributes, those characteristics, and what the result was. That, and I think I like to think of it this way, that a broken heart has to be filled, it has to be healed. And so a broken heart is essentially making a place for the Savior to come in and to be the one that heals that, that fills the brokenness, um, that takes care of the brokenness. And he's the one who made the heart. He understands the heart perfectly. And he's the one who can fill it perfectly and heal it perfectly. And so we, we need to get to that position where we are willing to allow his righteousness, his goodness, his sacrifice to become effective in our lives. Uh, and that's the way that we do it. All right, verse, verse 8. Um, How great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. Again, this idea that people have that somehow they are going to be in heaven because of what they've done is just so erroneous. We have to recognize that it's through the merits and mercy and grace of Christ that we are able to have salvation. And it's important to recognize the definition here. I think we've talked about mercy and grace and those definitions, but to talk about the definition of merits, okay? Merits means the goodness, or sorry, to earn a deserve, goodness or excellence, which entitles one's to, one to honor or regard, reward deserve that which is earned or merited, uh, to deserve or have just title to, to, like when you understand the definitions of merit, there's no way that you can possibly honestly think that you are the one who is in any way bringing about your own salvation. You know, in Alma 22, since man could not had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself, but the sufferings and death of Christ atoned for their sins. Okay, so our choice is, is to have faith in Christ and to repent, but really that salvation comes because of Jesus Christ and his intercession in verse 9. And they that believe in him, at the end of verse 9, shall be saved. Believe to have a firm persuasion of anything, in some cases to have full persuasion, approaching to certainty. To believe in is to hold as the object of faith. To believe on is to trust, to place full confidence in, to rest upon with faith. The word implies a yielding of the will and affections accompanied with a humble reliance on Christ for salvation. Okay, so that that's what's required of us. Then that is adding on to what it means to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. 
And so Christ's redemption, okay, this, this free salvation that is given to us, leads us to, in verse 10, all being brought back into the presence of God. Uh, because the fall was from Adam and Eve. Christ overcomes the fall for all of us. We are all resurrected and we're all brought back into the presence of God. Whether we stay there or not is determined on whether we have uh, you know, experienced that broken heart and contrite spirit and allowed Christ into us to change us uh, and to help us become more like him. So uh, these words, uh, verses, you know, really verses 3 through 10, I think are one of the most important descriptions of the Savior's atonement in all of scriptures. And hopefully that was uh, a little helpful piece for you all. All right, let's pick up in verse 11. This is where... Um, Lehi gives a discourse on opposition. So if you can think about opposition is absolutely required. How can you experience joy if you don't know misery, pleasure if you don't know pain? Hey, like there has to be these opposites or in verse 11, as Lehi says, all things must needs be a compound in one. Okay, so you've got to have this opposition or verse 12, there's no purpose in the end of its creation. We have to have this choice. We have to have this friction, this opposition, um, so that we can have the growth that is required to uh, become like our Heavenly Father and like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, the thing that I really wanted to focus on here was this concept in verse 13, and it's talked about other places in this chapter, especially in verse 14. This idea of acting versus being acted upon. Okay, so um, the first example, okay, is uh, from Elder Bednar, okay, when he gives this talk uh, called And Nothing Shall Offend Them, October 2006 General Conference. Okay, he says this, Endowed with agency, you and I are agents, and we primarily are to act and not just be acted upon. To believe that someone or something can make us feel offended, angry, hurt, or better diminishes our moral agency and transforms us into agents to be acted upon. As agents, however, you and I have the power to act and to choose how we will respond to an offensive or hurtful situation. So... I like to compare this to like a victim mentality. Okay, when we get into the victim mentality, we tend to say, well, these uh, other factors outside of me are actually the cause of this. When the reality is, it is our choice how to respond to those external circumstances. Okay, a good example would be um, in this uh, talk from April 2017, Trust in the Lord and Lean Not. I think this is just a beautiful example. A uh, story that was told where it says, um, story about a, a woman who uh, got cancer. So it says this, this is quoting from her. On October 29, 2015, I found out that I had cancer. My cancer has a 17% survival rate. The odds weren't good. I knew that I would be in for the fight of my life. I was determined to give it everything I had, not just for myself, but more important for my family. In December, I began chemo. I was familiar with many of the side effects of cancer-fighting drugs, but I did not know that it was possible for someone to be so sick and still be alive. 
At one point, I declared chemotherapy a human rights violation. I told my husband that I was done. I quit. I was not going back to the hospital. In his wisdom, my sweetheart patiently listened and then responded, Well then, we need to find someone to serve. What? Did he miss the fact that his wife had cancer and couldn't take one more bout of nausea or one more moment of excruciating pain? My symptoms gradually worsened to where I generally had one or two okay days a month when I could somewhat function as a living, breathing human being. It was those days when our family would find ways to serve. On one of those days, Amy's family, this woman, Amy, family distributed chemo comfort kits to other patients. Kits filled with items to cheer and to help relieve symptoms. When Amy couldn't sleep, she would think of ways to brighten someone else's day. Some ways were big, but many were just small notes or text messages of encouragement and love. On those nights when her pain was too great to sleep, she would lie in bed with her iPad and search for ordinances that need to be completed on behalf of her deceased ancestors. Miraculously, the pain would subside and she was able to endure. Service, Amy testified, saved my life. Where I ultimately found my strength to keep moving forward was the happiness I discovered in trying to relieve the suffering of those around me. I looked forward to our service projects with great joy and anticipation. Still to this day, it seems like such a strange paradox. You would think that someone who was bald, poisoned, and fighting for her life was justified in thinking that right now it is all about me. However, when I thought about myself, my situation, my suffering and pain, the world became very dark and depressing. When my focus turned to others, there was light, hope, strength, and courage, and joy. I knew that this was possible because of the sustaining, healing, and enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, this is the epitome of acting rather than being acted upon. External circumstances for this woman would indicate that she would have been totally okay with just saying, look, all these things have happened to me, and it's just the way it is, this stinks, and that's it. Uh, But rather than allowing those external circumstances to act upon her, she became an agent and acted and reached out and served and blessed others. And this is the epitome of Jesus Christ. When he was on the cross, think of all the people that he was concerned about. You know, he was concerned about John taking care of his mother. He was concerned about John uh, having a mother to mother him. He was concerned about forgiving the soldiers that had crucified him. He was concerned about the thief on the cross. So that is being, that is acting rather than being acted upon. And it's such a critical piece to us and how we endure things. We go through challenges and these external circumstances could make us sort of withdraw and just become the victims. Or we can look and find ways to serve and bless and comfort others and act in ways that will bring new light and hope into our lives because of how we're focusing on the Savior and becoming more like Him um, as we act rather than be acted upon. Another good example of this is my good friend Hayden, who had a terribly unfortunate accident a year and a half or so ago. Um, as he was training for a marathon, ended up falling off of a, an overpass and having, you know, going between life and death for a few days and having a, a ton of things happen to him. Uh, and he very well could have, because of those circumstances, just withdrawn into himself, but re- instead chose to focus on moving forward and acting and ended up running a marathon later on and has done some things, including writing a book that. Um, have just been a beautiful example of acting rather than being acted upon. So 
Um, I think how we look at our circumstances and, and whether we choose to be agents to act, as Elder Bednar said, is so important and critical in our journey to becoming like the Savior. So encourage us all to think about acting versus being acted upon. All right, the next uh, verse, verse 15, this is kind of an interesting verse here. Um, says, to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, after he had created our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and all things which are created, it must needs be that there was an opposition. Okay, there has to be these two trees so that Adam and Eve have a choice, which is essential to think about when you consider the process of the fall that, that Lehi is going to get into here. Even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one, so the forbidden fruit, being sweet and the other bitter. Very interesting. The forbidden fruit is related to being sweet. And the fruit of the tree of life in this case is actually uh, shown as being bitter. Why is that? We'll think through that. Okay, the forbidden fruit at this point in time this is actually what was going to further the plan that actually put the plan into action. Okay, so even though it actually leads to a lot of bitterness, it's sweet in the fact that ultimately it leads to a place where uh, we can have the joy of eternal life. Without it, we are left with this bitterness of Adam and Eve staying in the garden and nothing changing. Okay, so... Very interesting to think about that concept. Okay, um, to take this kind of analogy even further, there's some things in our lives that are bitter at some times and sweet in others because the fruit of the tree of life eventually Lehi describes it as sweet above all that is sweet, but that is after the fall and coming back to this idea of redemption, right? So that's when it becomes sweet. So there's similar things in our lives where timing is everything. Um, a good analogy would be um, like a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Okay, uh, If it's at the wrong time, that can become very bitter. But if it's at the right time, it becomes sweet. And so recognizing the timing there, I think, is is important. And, and that analogy of the sweetness of the forbidden fruit versus the bitterness of the tree of life can be applied to different things, um, but hopefully helps us understand um, just that initial choice that Adam and Eve had, that judgment call for Eve to say, actually, I, I need to take this sweet fruit and experience all the bitterness so that eventually I can get back to the tree and have the fruit that's sweet above all that is sweet. Um, so love that little uh, thought there. Um, and it just reminds me of a, a statement from President Nelson where he says, the only way to take uh, the pain out of death is to take the love out of life. And so this need for opposition, this need for um, the fall so that we can experience that opposition is really such a beautiful part about Heavenly Father's plan. Okay, um, let's skip down to um, verse 18. At the end of verse 18, um, the devil who is the father of all lies says to Adam and Eve, partake of the forbidden fruit and ye shall not die, but ye shall be as God knowing good and evil. And this idea of actually a lot of what he says is true. You know, uh, you'll be as God knowing you have to partake of this fruit to become as God. So um, 
quote that I always love, though, is if 99 truths are told to perpetuate one falsehood, the 100 statements together constitute a lie. So that is recognizing that is how Satan works is so important. He's going to tell us a bunch of truths to perpetuate a lie. You know, you look at um, the way he uses God's love, for example, like telling us, oh, God's going to love us no matter what. So it doesn't matter if you do X, Y, Z, or if you live contrary to the commandments, if you make X choice or Y choice, okay, it doesn't matter because God loves you. Well, yeah, that's true. God does love you. But again, as we talked about last week, there are some blessings that come from his love that are dependent upon our choices. And so recognizing that this is how Satan works is really important for us um, as we look at making our decisions. All right, so then we get into this whole description of the fall. And after Adam, verse 19, after Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden to till the earth. And they have brought forth children, yea, even the family of all the earth. And the days of the children of men were prolonged according to the will of God that they might repent while in the flesh. Okay, again, this is harkens back to the, the bitterness of the tree of life. If they would have partaken of it at that point without, no, without an opportunity for repentance, they would have lived forever in their sin rather than having a chance to experience mortality, experience the redemption of Christ and come back into the presence of God to partake of the tree of life and have it be sweet above all that is sweet, um, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Okay, so I love that. Wherefore, their state became a state of probation. Their time was lengthened according to the commandments which the Lord God had given unto the children of men. For he gave command that all men must repent. For he showed unto all men that they were lost because of the transgression of their parents. Okay, this next verse, these next couple of verses really important. If Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen. He would have remained in the Garden of Eden, and all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created, and they must have remained forever and had no end. And they would have had no children, wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. So that opposition that Lehi talks about sets up this whole uh, doctrinal exposition about the fall. And when we read it this way, it changes the way that we look at the fall and it changes the way we view Adam and Eve, that they are actually, we actually are in debt to them for the decision that they made, the judgment call that they made, uh, this transgression to have them leave the presence of God and leave the garden that God basically said to them with this tree, look, if you want to stay in the garden, you can't partake of this tree. Okay. Uh, so it was this, sort of temporal law that was given so that they would have an opposite choice, right? So that they could choose to um, violate the law of the Garden of Eden by taking, by partaking of that fruit, of the forbidden fruit, so that they could get to the point where they could experience joy, where they could have children, um, where they could know good uh, because they would know the opposites. And it leads to verse 24, like, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. So often in Christianity, they, we look, they look at the fall as, oh, and Adam and Eve ruined everything. No, that's not you know, what happened. It's actually the opposite. Adam and Eve 
are the ones who made the choice that brought everything into play and made it possible for us to experience the joy of redemption and have all these opposites so that we could indeed progress and become like our heavenly parents. So all things were done in God's wisdom. And verse 25, Adam fell that men might be in Menar, that they might have joy. Without that fall, we could not have experienced that joy. All right, I want to pick up in verse, go to verse 26. This is a verse we don't pay attention to. We do verse 25 and we do verse 27. But in reality, verse 26 is, I don't know if I could say this or not, but probably more important. And this is why. Verse 26, And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever. Knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. In other words, without Christ's redemption, we would not have agency. He purchased that agency at a great price. I am so grateful to him for that purchase. Think of what it means to have free will, to have agency, to have the ability to choose. Without Christ's redemptive act, without his atonement, you would not have the ability to choose because you would be subject to Satan. Okay, Because the second that you're in this fallen condition, there's no way to get out of it. Uh, there would be no way to, to make choices to come back into the presence of God. So Christ's atonement actually is what purchases agency for us. And it's so important that we recognize that it's a, a next level gratitude in my view for what Christ has done when we recognize that. So I love thinking through verse 26 because it then sets up verse 27 Men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient to men. They are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, Christ, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. So while Christ uh, has great interest in our joy and our salvation, Satan really only has interest in bringing us captive to him and bringing us into his misery. And so when we think about our, our decisions each day, think about does this decision lead to freedom or captivity? And to be honest with that decision, um, I think is extremely critical in us making the right ones. And so then Lehi says, so given all this, look to Christ, choose eternal life. Don't give the devil power to captivate or bring you down to hell. And verse 30, and this is, um, he says, I have none other object save it be the everlasting welfare of your souls. Okay, so this is the epitome of charity. This is what Heavenly Father is like. This is what the Savior is like. Everything they do is for the welfare of our souls. And so this idea of, of giving us freedom to choose and inviting us to choose uh, liberty and eternal life uh, is so beautiful and uh, shows that his, the depth of his love for us, um, that he, everything he does is for our benefit. Everything he does is for the welfare of our souls. 
And I testify that that's true, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.